0: This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. And welcome, welcome. You're here live with Dr. Jeff Werber, your host for the next 30 minutes here on Pet Life Radio's Ask the Vets with Dr. Jeff. You're here with me um, just it's AMA. Ask me anything. Uh, just you can send questions. You can Well, first of all, the best way to get me is call me live here right now at 877-385-8882. Once again, 877-385-8882. Uh, here to talk about anything you want to talk about. Dogs and cats are my specialty. However... I do deal with other animals. And if I don't have an answer, you will get one certainly by our next show. So um, anyway, I hope you've all had a good week last week and we're on to a nice new week. You know, it's interesting. I look out here in, in not always sunny Southern California. We were uh, had 90 degrees yesterday. Sunny sky is not a cloud. Here it is. Um, no, it's only nine by me. And um, it is overcast, but we get that a lot. We get the, you know, as, as the haze sets over the ocean, and comes eastward. And then, uh, sure enough, by usually noon, it burns off. So, we're looking for a good day. So, as many of you know who follow me on the show, I like to start with just some pet news. I, I really want to keep you guys abreast of, of what goes on in the veterinary world. Not just veterinary, in the animal world as well. So, just keeps you updated just as I do. So, I have some sources. I have the American Veterinary Medical Association Smart Brief. I have the American Animal Hospital Association News Stat. And I peruse them and go through stories that I found uh, interesting. So I'll share some with you. And then in the second part of the show, we're going to talk about skin, a particular skin problem that I've been seeing a lot of, mainly because of popularity increase of certain breeds of dogs. So may as well share them with you, because if you are one of the many, obviously, that have some of these breeds, you might want to know a little bit of what we're going to talk about. So that's, I'm going to leave you hanging. That's your cliffhanger there. So uh, uh, here we go. This is great news for everybody. A Senate bill uh, unanimously was was unanimous, is, uh, unanimous, and that is preventing, it's in addition to the uh, Prevention of Animal Cruelty and Torture Act, now makes it a, if someone is convicted of deliberate cruelty, it's a felony with fines and up to seven years in prison. So, um, you know, at least that's stopping. Speaking of which, and I haven't seen it yet, and I'd be really curious to know, I was out last night. And uh, I saw a, a very, very interesting documentary called Game Changers, and I found it really fascinating. So we were just talking about it, and uh, I, I'm like, I don't want to give you much about it. Just if you can, it's on Netflix, Game Changers. So someone told me one about how dairy is scary. And um, in fact, I'll, I'll look it up. It's either dairy scarier or the scary of dairy. But anyway, also, I heard... It is really, really interesting. And as I said, I have not. It's, yeah, dairy is scary. That's what it is. So uh, I might want to check that out too. (laughs) It might scare you. I don't know. But I heard it's very, very powerful and upsetting at the same time for us animal lovers. So uh, you you might want to check that out. And if you do, get back to me. Get back to me here at Dr. Jeff, Dr. Jeff at PetLifeRadio.com because I'd love to know your thoughts and I'm going to make sure I see it this week as well. This is also a really cool story, and that is that a life-saving sealant, it's a dry fibrin sealant, it's a wound dressing that has been credited with saving lives on the battlefield. And interestingly, it was developed by a veterinarian, and uh, it is uh, Richard Butch Harris, who actually did not go into his dad's business. He decided he wanted to be a vet and uh, he obviously had some kind of science or engineering background. He came up with this product. It interestingly sailed through the FDA and he recently received. And I thought that this was really cool for a veterinarian because very few veterinarians have received this. And it is it's it's called the Order of Military Medical Merit Award. By the U.S. Army, I think that's really, really cool. I, I think bigger. Than that, I think it was the United States Armed Forces. So, congrats to uh, Butch Harris. I think uh, you know, whenever a veterinarian does something, you know, unique. It, it's interesting. There are a lot of veterinarians out there in different fields that maybe never practiced veterinary medicine, or did for a while, and now they're in industry of some form, and uh, or they go into science, they go into research. Most drug companies, regular drug companies, have veterinarians on staff also, because of course, though they're kind of getting away from it. They do some animal testing. But anyway, it's great to, to hear that some veterinarians are contributing to really cool things in science and industry, not just for people, but for pets as well. This happened. It's so funny. I read this story because my daughter, my youngest daughter, I say younger, she's 28 years old, but she works out in a gym. She does some boxing thing called Thai. And um, she shows me a little lesion on her face. And and I, I said, Shane, that looks like ringworm. And it was round, it was circular, it was pretty classic. And how'd she get ringworm? I mean, she has dogs, but uh, it turns out in the last week and a half, five more people at the gym are getting ringworm. So think about this. You're wearing these, you know, there's kind of, there's like miniature version of the boxing gloves. It's a, it's a martial arts kind of thing. And they're hitting each other. So you can imagine, let's say you have a ringworm lesion here on your cheek and someone gives you a, gives you a pop on the cheek. And then now it's on the glove. And then they go ahead <laughs> and hit somebody else. And uh, the story that I read, which is so funny, is ringworm. People can transmit it to to other people and to their pets. And there've been cases of horses, cats and dogs getting ringworm and the common denominator was a person. So you wanna be very careful. If you are diagnosed with ringworm, don't think it's only one way that you must've gotten it from your pet. You could've picked it up some other way. You wanna make sure that you don't give ringworm to your pets. So uh, wash your hands well, very dilute bleach uh, um, or any kind of antifungal cream, lotion, whatever. One thing I'll tell you that, so you don't have to worry, is that ringworm cannot infect or affect a non-poured area of your skin. So it has to have, uh, I shouldn't say poured, hair follicles. So one of the places where we, if you look, unless, it's very, unless you're a very interesting kind of person, you're not growing hair on your fingertips. So you don't have to worry about taking the applicator, putting some of the tube, the cream from the little tube on your finger, and then rubbing it into your lesion. Wash your finger, but you don't have to worry about your finger getting a ringworm lesion. It has to be an area of the skin that has hair follicles. Now, you may not have any hair growing from those follicles. Hopefully, in some places, you don't. But just FYI, just so you know. Also cool, you know, one of the things, I, I, I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but one of my mentors when I was in vet school at Davis, Dr. Barbara Kitchell, and she was um, double-boarded in internal medicine, and then she did a residency in oncology. So, And then, because she was bored after that, she went to Stanford for a PhD in comparative oncology. So one thing you can't say about Barb is that she's stupid because she is not a chance stupid. She is so bright and so sharp. Anyway, one of the things that when I, after I saw her at a conference and I went up to her and said, hi, and I I heard, you know, I knew she had the PhD and I asked her what, I'm just so curious because I I did my oncology uh, rotation with Barbara and I also did one of my internal medicine rotations with her. So I, I really knew her well. And um I said so what did you learn what was like the most interesting thing about the the PhD in Stanford I mean god comparative oncology she goes what i learned the most is how little we know about cancer which is frightening at the same time but it's kind of keeps the doors open there is so much to know so they, she was talking about how it was so interesting to her that how much of our immunological organ that are bone marrow and spleen and things that create our immunity, our antibodies, that it turns out that the best defense we have against cancer is our own immune system. So now if that's the case, how can we stimulate our immune system to react to cancer cells? Because the drugs we use can slow the growth, but as we know, not many cancers are curable. Yeah, there are some, like some lymphomas can be cured, and there are some cancers that can be cured, some can be cured surgically, if gotten early, for example, a melanoma, if you get it before it goes too deep, and you get it, you do the mo's, and you can make sure you get it all, then you can be cured. But many of them, a majority of them are, you can slow the process, but it takes a lot to kill the cancer. But the body can kill the cancer. Let's work on the body to kill its own cancer cells. So three veterinary schools, Davis, Wisconsin, and Colorado State University, are enrolling healthy dogs into a study to test cancer vaccines. And I know one of my colleagues does homeopathic medicine and and holistic medicine. What he does is he will take cancer cells. And certain cells that are immune-mediated, like, for example, he did it recently with a dog that had a skin immunologic disease called pemphigus, and he takes a sample of the lesions, and he grinds them up, does something, and puts them into a vaccine, and then injects them back into the dog to try to stimulate the immune system to attack the cancer cell, just like a vaccine. You give a vaccine to attack a certain virus or to attack a certain bacterium. So uh, this attacks the cancer cells. It's going to be breakthrough. I'm sure you know you hear these predictions that, I don't know, something like by 50 or 100 years from now, people will live to well over 100, Uh, there's going to be little to no cancer, and uh, look, I hope they're right, I'm sad that I'm not going to be there to see it and enjoy it, but at least it's pretty cool. Here's one that, no surprise to me, but no surprise to the veterinary community, it might be a surprise to some very famous people or a particular famous person out there who is a well-known, untrained, uneducated dog trainer who has a lot of charisma and he's made a a heck of a career for himself. But, and I'll read it to you, and it is like at the veterinary conferences when the name comes up, it's like, oh my God, they want to scream and shout in disgust. But using negative reinforcement as a training method for dogs could have long lasting effects on their mental health. Dogs trained with aversive-based methods experience poorer welfare as compared to more to, to those trained with reward-based methods. And we've known this, but the old-fashioned way, think about it. Think about, I don't know the ages of some of my listeners out there, but if you're like me, the old-fashioned way, I remember when I was a kid and our dogs did something bad. They pooped in the house. They peed on the rug, okay? Not a dog, we're talking puppies. So what do you do? You went, you rolled up the newspaper and you went over to you and you either smacked the carpet, you give them a smack across the face, you scream, no! Right? Meanwhile, we're learning that that's not the best way because how do you train a dog or be angry at a dog doing something normal that is physiologic, it's natural, it's essential, and you're telling him no? And then you expect him to go outside in front of you while you're walking him on the leash? And you're saying, Come on, buddy, you're out here now for 20 minutes in the house. You can't hold it in for more than 10. Would you go already? And that poor puppy's looking up at you and going, What are you, nuts? I'm not going in front of you. You yelled at me last time I went. So, It is not good. We are learning now that better ways to do it is through desensitization, positive reinforcement. You try to eliminate the possibility of them doing the wrong thing. You encourage them. You make it easy for them to do the right thing. And then you praise them. Reward-based training. And you can also employ into that something we call operant conditioning, where, for example, I'm sure you've heard of clicker training, for example. So every time you're going to give them reward, click And then give them reward, click, give them reward, click, give them reward, click. But this time don't give them reward. But two times later, click and give them reward again. Pretty soon the click replaces the positive reward. But they get that same feeling of good. I did good. Thanks. (laughs) And they're wagging their tails are so happy because you praise them. So and then we counter condition them. We actually take the stimulus, the situation that they were afraid of. We get them to chill, to desensitize. And then we actually make it so positive of an experience that they want to do it. And they come back and they're going to want to do it again. So it's called desensitization. And then we counter condition them using positive reward based training. And that's the way we do the whole idea of flooding. Flooding is a technique that's old fashioned. That's where you take them. And for example, you have a dog that for a perfect example. When my Labradoodle was a pup, he was uncontrollable. And when he would go up and down the stairs, he did not how to walk up and down anything. He was running. He was klutzy. He was. He had these big feet. He was turned out to be an eighty pounder. And anyway, as he was running down the stairs, and I mean running, he slipped and took a dive for probably the last ten steps. Hit his head, but uh, went into the wall across the bottom of the staircase. And if I tell you, he was scared. You know what, list, and he did not want to go up those stairs ever again. So. He he would literally I'd, I'd have to pick him up to take him upstairs and pick him up to take him downstairs because he didn't realize it was his behavior that caused the pain that the stairs were the bad guy. The stairs made him do that. So he did not want to go up the stairs. So anyway, I had to literally make it fun for him to go up the stairs. He was, of course, since he was a labradoodle, he was very treat motivated. And we would pick him up and put him. We we'll treat one, one treat on the next stair up, and then two or three. And we got him to the point where he was good again. But let me tell you about flooding. Flooding would have been: I grab him by the collar and I force him to go up the stairs with me. He's so nervous, he's so anxious because he remembers of that bad situation, and he's he's petrified. Sometimes, might be even urinating out of fear. And then we get to the top. You see, you see, buddy, you're doing all fine. Then we do the same thing down. That's flooding. You you force them to do something they don't want to do. Yeah, and you think in your mind that when they've accomplished it and it, they're still there, that they understand that, oh, you see, you see, you're good. You did it. And you're still alive. You're still fine. So now you can start doing it again. That is negative reinforcement and we don't want to do it. So um, anyway, with that, we're going to go into a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about something called skinfold hyodermas and how they become and why they become so popular. Don't go away. everyone, Michelle Fern here. You know how they say you are what you eat? Well, guess what? Same is true for your fur babe. I have a grandpa dog, as I call him. Mr. Z is now 14. And over the years, you know, he's had his issues, but lately he's had a lot of allergies. And I've recently put him on a solid gold diet and I have noticed a major difference. And right now, solid gold is offering an amazing offer to all of our listeners. Yep. By visiting solidgoldpet.com petlife pet life for 30% off your first order. Go ahead and take advantage of this great offer. talk let's talk pets on pet life radio pet life radio pet life radio dot com and welcome back you're here live again with dr jeff and um Uh, One other quick story I read that I I found actually kind of made me very happy. A Texas woman, Kayla Denny from Taft, Texas, won $35,000, an award from the Unsung Hero Award from Petco. Congrats, by the way, to Petco for doing this when she took over the shelter. In taft texas she brought the euthanasia rate down from almost 100 percent down to zero and she took management over a year ago hats off congrats to kayla that is amazing when we think about new very popular breeds if i asked 15 years ago and you were thought of a dog with a lot of skin folds probably one of the dogs that would come to mind is the sharp a also bloodhounds They have so much extra, so much loose skin. A skin fold pyoderma is where the skin kind of folds in on itself. So basically you have a moist area where now it's dark. It becomes moist because the moisture, when you have a dark environment, it gets very wet and moist. If they do get bathed or get wet, it kind of sticks in there. There's nowhere, the skin can't breathe. Now remember, dogs don't really sweat in their skin. Where they do sweat is they have the eccrine sweat glands, and those are the pads of the feet and the tip of the nose. But they have other glands, apocrine glands on other parts of the body, so there is some moisture. So what happens is with these pyodermas, they develop an infection. It's bacterial, it's yeast. They are very uncomfortable, so and very common. Now, when you think of some of the dogs, what other dogs, especially one breed in particular, I have two, that have a lot of skin folds, especially on the face, Around the tail or the tail nub would be more more specific, and that is the French Bulldog. So now we're seeing when you look at your what we call brachycephalic breeds. Those are the breeds with the pushed-in face, where the skin should fill out a full snout out to here, but because it's pushed in, everything is pushed in because of the brachycephalic nature that causes a lot of folds right above the bridge to the nose, right under the eyes. And I'm sure you you know this if you have any. Brachycephalic breeds like the Shih Tzu, the Lhasa, the Japanese Chin, the Pug, the Boston, of course, the Frenchie, the English Bulldog, the English Mastiff—any dog that face is looks like they ran into a brick wall and everything got pushed in. Uh, cats, the Persian cat, for example. So these animals are known for their what we call skin fold pyoderma. And um, so what you need to do is, first of all, talk to your veterinarian, because depending on, you know, with a culture or just, you can use some sort of ointment, some sort of cream that has both in it. it. has an antibacterial property and an antifungal property within the medication. But here's the problem. We just mentioned that one of the big issues with skinfold pyodermis is moisture. So to put an ointment or a cream on or a gel of some sort, It does worry me. So it's got to be, what I recommend is the following. If you have an antifungal cream or lotion that also has an antibacterial in it, that would be ideal. You want to wash the area well. You can get these wipes. One's called Maliseb. It's an anti wipe. Any kind of wipe that can at least clean the area and dry it up a little bit at the same time. If you want to use an ointment or a cream, it has to be used really thin, thin, thin layer. Don't apply it liberally it's some of the uh, when you apply it in other places. It's gotta be a very scant amount. And then you wanna follow with a powder that is a drying agent that also has antibacterial property, antifungal property. So one is called NeoPredef. There are some out there that also can dry the area. And the key is you wanna actually spread the, the fold away, clean it really well. then you can apply the powder alone or just the first, the cream, very, very thin layer, and then the powder. And the important thing is you want to dry it, clean it every day. Now, another thing we place, we get, as I said, is the tail fold. Now, because of the corkscrew tails that some of these dogs have, you may need a surgical procedure because what happens is the tail actually kind of turns in on itself. And if you look at a radiograph, an x-ray, you can see this and there's no way. And sometimes those they turn in so deeply, you couldn't even get your whole finger in there. And if you try, it really hurts the dog. So there are certain surgeons will do it. Maybe some GPs can do it. I don't like to do it. I usually have a surgeon do it. And that is to go in and actually remove that kinked part of the tail that's growing instead of coming out, but it's making a U-turn and going back in. That has to be removed. On my first Frenchie, on good old Herbie, we had to do that surgery and he was fine afterwards. My The two current Frenchies are fine. But it's something that you just need to know that it can be a problem. If you can get in there and clean it, do so. If you can get the powder in there, do so. You'll find. If you took like a Kleenex or a soft paper towel or a gauze sponge and you rubbed your finger way in there as much as you can and came out, you would see some red. You would see some dark, like a yeast, like a malassezia dermatitis, we call it. And there it's very uncomfortable for your dogs. It, it's so painful. They obviously need to be on some sort of antibiotic. And so you want to treat it internally. You want to treat it topically. Of course, you need to see your veterinarian. But it's something that can be fixed if it's the corkscrew tail uh, surgically. It's something that you may probably, hopefully, won't need. Not many need the surgery. But you'll be. But you just, if you're aware that the problem is there and you attack it, you stay on top of it, you clean it, then that would be great. Before we go, if you have any questions about any anything that your pet is dealing with that you would like to know more about, understand why it happens, how it happens how to prevent it, how to treat it if it's already too late that you couldn't prevent it, just send me a note to Dr. Jeff at petliferadio.com. You can also, if you haven't downloaded it already, download AirVet, A-I-R-V-E-T, and you can go to my, if you just put in for my hospital, AirVet Hospital, you will see Dr. Jeff Werber, Dr. Werber at AirVet Hospital, and you can reach me live video chat, and we can talk. I can help you through things, let you know if it's something you need to see your veterinarian for. If you, or you need to see an emergency for it depending on the hour and what is available. But um, I can help you through a lot and hopefully save you some time and money if it's something you can wait until you can see your regular veterinarian the next day. So once again, Dr. Werber on AirVet. And you just, if you click on when it says your primary hospital, just put AirVet Hospital and you will see me up there um, and we can talk. Um, other than that, I want to uh, thank, I talked to Joe, Joe Candela from um, Stony Point, New York, he, uh, I answered a question for him a couple of weeks ago. He was nice enough to let me know that things are good. He has another question that maybe some of you can benefit from about hairball remedies in cats. And maybe most of you know, some don't. Uh, well, first of all, before there were commercial products, do you know what we used to use for hairball in cats? We used to use Vaseline, petroleum jelly. And many of the remedies out there are petroleum-based. And he had read that petroleum can cause some blockage of the absorption of nutrients once it's going through the tract. And the answer to that is yes, but also a little no. Yes, it can. So which is why as it's moving through, um, it doesn't continue to coat the track. So the areas that the, the petroleum jelly is going through at that time or the hairball remedy made of petroleum, then that area will probably not be able to absorb nutrients. But the rest of it will. And after it passes, it'll reassume. But that's why they say. You want to usually, when we start a hairball remedy on a cat for the first time, I recommend giving it for four consecutive days. And then after that, as a maintenance, just maybe twice a week. And so that, Joe, thank you very much. That will curb that potential possibility of affecting the absorption of nutrients from the cat's diet. And there's some other products out there, one that uses slippery elm that are hairball remedies. A lot of times in the treats, the hairball remedy treats, of course, they can't use petroleum, so they're using other things that will are high, high fiber that can help the passage of the ingesta with the hair slide through the intestinal tract and come out the other end. So um, keep in mind. And also, just so you know, how many times have I heard a cat, very healthy looking, Very animated, still eating, but vomiting, but there's no hairballs in the vomitus. And when I mentioned it could be hairballs, they go, no, 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 no," because he never vomits hairballs. Ah, just so you know, what comes up when a cat or a dog vomits? Only the contents that are in the stomach and still not even all of it. Some say that when a pet vomits, maybe only 50% or 60% of what was in the stomach comes up, which is why sometimes we we have to treat an animal for a toxin. We give them something called apomorphine to induce vomiting and they vomit. And what you could just swore, watch the meat, isn't there. So anyway, keep that in mind. Sometimes maybe 50, 60% will come up. So it still could be left in the stomach. But my, when it comes to hairballs, here's my other analogy. Let's say you have a plug in your drain. It's already gone through the sink. Now, you know, if you look under a sink, you got that S thing, like the trap. And if it's there, will you see it come up when the, the sink fills up with water or whatever else is coming up? The answer is no. It's already past that. So when that hairball makes it through the pyloric sphincter, now it's in the duodenum, it's coursing through, and that's where it, it stops, and now it's blocking everything else. So everything else is coming up, but only that that's in the stomach at the time of the vomitus could possibly come up. So you can have a cat vomiting because of the hairballs, and yet you won't see the hairball in the vomitus. So keep that in mind. And uh, again, one of the criteria I usually use is if the cat is healthy in every other way it's, it can't wait for its next meal, it's not febrile, it's running around, it's behaving normally, but they it vomits with some regularity. I would, before spending money on a ton of tests unnecessarily, All right, do a hairball remedy. Four days straight, see if it works, and then twice a week, and then if still that's not the problem, then yes, you should go in and uh, have some uh, diagnostics done to see what's going on. But typically what I find, that when animals are acting totally fine, I mean... Everything is good. The only issue is they, they vomit on some occasion that there is something easy to fix. It's an easy fix, and that's one of them. In a, a French bulldog, for example, it's going to be a gastric reflux, and they vomit usually at night, and uh, some very easy fixes, and you don't have to start spending a ton of money on tests yet. I would try simple things first. As long as the animal is looking good and healthy, uh, no need to jump to the fancy tests. So anyway, with that, you're here live with Dr. Jeff. We'll see you uh, next week. Or you can uh, maybe I'll see you on AirPet. And uh, if you have any other questions, you can always send them to me at Dr. Jeff at Have a great week, everybody. Let's talk pets every week on demand only on PetLifeRadio.com.